We are back. He was without a doubt uh, one of our best guests we've had on this program. We had him on three times, and he's he was excellent every damn time. I'm referring to the Uncle John of the Uncle John Bathroom Readers Series. Back on December 6th of 2007, we spoke to him for the first time. And without further ado, let's, let's go back to 2007. Strategically placed on the back of the commode or near the bathtub, one frequently finds a colorful book or books filled with curious facts, jokes, stories, and anecdotes parceled out in segments designed to occupy the mind as one performs the necessary functions that would otherwise represent downtime in the bathroom. These are, in fact, volumes of the Bathroom Readers series, specifically Uncle John's Bathroom Readers, with titles like Legendary Lost or Slightly Irregular Bathroom Reader. Purportedly produced by the Bathroom Readers Institute, these handy tomes have been produced regularly over the years. This fall, the triumphant 20th anniversary Uncle John's Bathroom Reader has hit the bookstores of America, and when we were offered a chance to interview Uncle John himself, we jumped at the opportunity. Listeners to this show will note that we've often quoted from the pages of this series as we find their data to be reliable and their writing style to be interesting and amusing. Any books designed to be read in brief episodes have to be succinct, which is another reason why we like them. We don't know much about Uncle John or the Bathroom Readers Institute or how this series has become a publishing success story, but we'll try to correct those deficiencies in the next 25 minutes as we say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Gordon, Uncle John Javna. Greetings. Nice to be with you. And I assume that you are the founder of the Bathroom Readers Institute? I am Uncle John, uh, <laughs> the uh, chief bottle washer, janitor, editor, and publisher of uh, Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. A few minutes later, we asked him about uh, one of the recurring features in these books, which is the origins of things. One thing you like to do, I notice, is, is pick up something and then give numerous examples of it that you pull from different areas of life. Uh, the current edition has uh, talks about something being grandfathered in, how this, this, this phrase originates with the Jim Crow era in an effort to keep blacks from voting. They passed laws saying that, well, if your grandfather voted, then you could vote. But then you segue from that into other examples of how this grandfathering phenomenon uh, uh, appears in different areas. Like, spitballers were allowed to continue in the major right. leagues if they'd been throwing spitballs when it, when, at the time it was banned. Right. And not only do we go there, but then, uh, going on the Jim Crow theme, we went to, we, we include the uh, illiteracy test that was given uh, for voters. It was actually a way of discriminating against uneducated voters. Uh, the idea being that if you pass the literacy test, you, you qualified as a voter. And the questions are really difficult. Uh, well, you have a whole section on that, and I was having a hard time with some of them. Yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is that, that and, and it was mostly southern states that, that had it, but these questions are really hard, and I challenge people to see how literate they, they really are. That's an example, I think, of you sort of striking a blow for justice, pointing out where, uh, where things are, are unfair. I mean, uh, for example, you, in the grandfathering thing, you mentioned, well, machine guns are legal if you owned it before 1986. You can still own a machine gun in the United States, which, it, which is amazing. But um, uh, you had a, one of the previous editions of the book. I think it was, uh, I don't know, it was the great big uh, bathroom reader, I guess. You talked about the savings and loan crisis in some detail, and it actually did a very good job of summarizing that, uh, that great scandal. We're in for another one. Maybe there's more, more to write about. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the current edition has, again, it's, it's very eclectic. Uh, 
you have this section of the tradition, how to make your own gelatin. And I think anyone that reads that is going to not be reaching for the Jello pops anytime soon. True gelatin, which if anybody doesn't know this, it comes from animal bones. And, uh, uh, and of course, the recipe for how to make gelatin involves boiling bones in a cauldron, <laughs> which I don't think anyone's going to, to do, but it's still interesting to, uh, to see how it's done. And that follows in the footsteps of other articles we've written about uh, how to cook a porcupine. I missed that one. How do you cook a porcupine? Um, I forget, to tell you the truth. But I think that's something you'd want to forget. We have moose recipes in, in one book, and uh, we even have a recipe for making shrunken heads. Wow. Which, which is really an article about the Hivero Indians in South America. Don't try this at home. <laughs> right. We have a whole series of, of things about don't try this at home, but if you did, here's how you could do it. Yeah. Including how to make an atom bomb, but that's a reprint, actually. I noticed that uh, there's a consistency throughout all the volumes there, there, in, in how it sort of reads, and it sort of, I think, reflects maybe one person editing. Or that, or that, is that, is that uh, your handiwork? That's me, yes. We call that the voice. It's too much for one single person to write year after year after year to keep the, the quality up. Um, it, it requires a staff. Uh, I refer to them as my crack research staff, which is a little bathroom joke. Uh, but, but we're constantly reading and, and researching uh, ideas and articles, and uh, and then, yes, we do need to make them all sound like it's with the same uh, yeah. same voice and from book to book. So about, about a dozen people per volume, would you say, or? Uh, six. Sometimes we have some freelancers who come in and, and help out. He's a wise man, that Uncle John Jabna, uh, when saying that it's easier to be funny in a short space. Something I wish the writers for Saturday Night Live would uh, become aware of. We've done occasional bits of comedy shtick on this program, and we, we, we try and live by the, uh, the rule that uh, brevity is the soul of wit, because um, while it's relatively easy to uh, get in, have a few yucks, and get out, it's hard to sustain it. Anyway, in addition to the regular series of books, which come out on a yearly basis, the Uncle John's uh, series often takes special editions. Uh, we had him on the program to talk about one. It was... Uh, it was the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Plunges Into Music. And the whole volume was about things musical. Here's how some of that went. Well, one section in the book lists some, uh, some big hits that were covers of songs that previously had gone nowhere, which I thought was kind of intriguing. George Harrison did uh, Got My Mind Set on You. Uh, yep. and, and I guess uh, Three Dog Night, Mama Told Me Not to Come, was actually a Randy Newman song. Right. Uh, and, and the big one is uh, Respect, Aretha Franklin's big hit which was actually a cover of an Otis Redding song. And Otis's song didn't go anywhere, but, but Aretha's sure did. Yeah, her signature song at this point. It is. There's, there's so many entertaining little, little tidbits in, in, in all of your books. Uh, one of them I, I, was, I was, had to laugh at was uh, the fact that A Boy Named Sue was actually written by Playboy magazine humorist Shel Silverstein when he was reading about the Scopes Monkey Trial, of all things. He wrote the song at Columbia Records, then gave it to, to Johnny Cash to use. Unlikely song, but sometimes that's, you know, it, it, that's sort of a crossover. It's a novelty song, but it's also it's a big country, big country hit, which he uh, performed, I think, for the first time at, uh, at Folsom Prison. Yeah. Or was it San Quentin? I can't remember. Yeah. One of the yeah. prison albums. And, uh, and he had to read it he because... He was reading the lyrics. Yeah, he didn't know the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I love that story. They, uh, 
um, dubbed in the uh, some of the cheers. Yeah, and I guess they you, you reveal the fact that, that they didn't actually cheer when he said he shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. That they added that in later. They added that in, and that that made some people very very angry. Yeah. But yes, you will find lots of behind the hits kinds of things like that in in this new book. But you know what else we did uh, in this that's kind of fun is uh, we went sort of to the periphery of, of music. We looked at things like uh, medical conditions that uh, that are unique to musicians, such as uh, Fiddler's Neck, <laughs> which is a, so they get a leathery, Fiddler's get a leathery patch of skin from playing, from holding the violin there sure. too many times. Or guitar nipple, which is uh, same same kind of thing. Uh, or tuba lips or bagpiper's fungus. I Who knew? <laughs> Actually, I miss, I miss that part about bagpipers' fungus. How does that happen? Well, because bagpipes are made of sheepskin coated with uh, treacle, which is something made from molasses, it's a gr- breeding ground for various fungi. One is called Cryptococcus, and the other is called Aspergillus. Yeah. Or Aspergillus. Yeah. And... Um, because uh, they, the bagpipers can inhale these spores, sometimes they, they get a uh, deadly lung disease. It can even go to their brain and kill them. Wow. Do you play the bagpipe? I certainly do not. And okay. I-, <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe you were, uh, uh-oh. Well, no, I, I was intrigued by numerous of the, the, the cutting remarks you had about various instruments. I didn't recall any jokes about the bagpipes, but I did like things like, uh, what's the difference between an accordion and an onion? Well, no one cries when you chop up an accordion. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, we do have a few musician jokes in there, including uh, what do you get when you uh, play New Age music backwards? Well, oddly enough. New Age music. (laughs) That's a good point. Do you have any New Age music, Mr. McMillan? Now, is that being played forward or backward? No idea. All right, that last was from uh, show number 308. Half a year later, we had him back for show number 336. This was in conjunction with the 21st edition of the Bathroom Readers series, which they titled Unsinkable. He's Uncle John himself from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. This entertaining and informative collection of books goes back for years. And this fall, the 21st volume titled Uncle John's Unsinkable Bathroom Reader is out. Gordon, Uncle John Javna has joined us before, and we're happy to have him come aboard thrice. Uncle John, welcome back to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. It's great to be back with you. We don't get to say thrice very often, so that's kind of good. <laughs> that's right. That's, <laughs> you get a high marks just for using that word. How old is the readers, the Bathroom Readers series at this point? 20, 21 years. Really? Yeah, 21 years. We started back in 1987. One every year, a new edition. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, and past ten years we've done a, a few additional titles, more than just one a year. But uh, so we're up to about I don't know, forty or fifty titles in the bathroom reader series. But uh, twenty-one years going and going strong. Oh, see, that's a bathroom pun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to describe the series, and, and was having some trouble summarizing. So I thought I'd ask you, how, how do you give a thumbnail summary for these books? Well. Um, what they are is a compilation of short, quippy articles on a variety of topics. Anything that's family-rated. We, we'll cover any topic from uh, uh, sports and, and entertainment, music, TV, uh, to politics, history, and even science. And uh, we, like, you know, we like to keep our articles short because it is written for the bathroom and you don't want to be in there forever uh reading the end of the uh <laughs> finding out what happened at the end of the story but uh, uh other than that anything anything goes and we like to have fun with this stuff 
And I, I do want to start off with a warning for our listeners. You do try to make the book, uh, you know, the small portions to be read, you know, a short period of time. But one can sort of get absorbed and remain sitting longer than advisable. Last week, I made that mistake. I set <laughs> off to go for a run shortly afterwards and cramped my hamstring oh. where it touches the toilet seat. So you do have to be careful I'm with these so books. I'm so sorry. I wish I could take responsibility for it, but I can't. You shouldn't have sat that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, you won't be contacted by my lawyers, so don't worry. Okay. Because <laughs> okay. I got the, my bathroom attorney uh, ready, ready to go. <laughs> Now, odd facts are prominent in these books. You guys are always amazing me. There's something I thought I, I probably should have known. Case in point, in the beginning of the book, you mentioned the Oakland Raiders logo. I grew yeah. up in the Bay Area. I remember when the Raiders played in Frank Yule Field, and that, that pirate face goes way back for me. Turns out it was modeled after an actor, not a pirate. Yeah, it was modeled after Randolph Scott, who is the uh, a Western a hero of Western movies from the uh, 40s and 50s. I did not. I just didn't know. It just it just didn't remind me of Randolph Scott. It's just amazing to know that. Yeah, uh, we love those things. I mean, the NBA logo was modeled after a real player, huh. and that would be Jerry West. They they never stop. Yeah, I think you can see, dear listener, why it is we are we're such a fan of uh, the mo of this series. And the great thing about having the editor on was that you can ask him questions about it, like like this one. You have a chapter on doing a Ratner. What, what is that? Uh, that's making an incredible business blunder. Uh, and uh, it comes from a fellow in Canada, if I remember correctly, uh, named Ratner. Oh, no, it's in England. I'm sorry, it's in England. He owned a jewelry uh, uh, <laughs> a chain of jewelry stores. And um, at a uh, speech in 1991, he was giving a speech to the um, Institute of Directors, which is a kind of... CEO think tank, and he said, uh, we do cut glass sherry decanters complete with six glasses on a silver-plated tray, all for four four ninety-five of it's in pounds, uh, four pounds or five pounds. And people say, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say, because it's total crap. <laughs> now, he thought he was just saying it to the room. Uh, he didn't think there was any, any media around, but there was, and it was reported in the, in the media, and... Um, he ruined his company. He ruined the brand name so that uh, within less than a year, it went from a, being worth a billion pounds to half a billion pounds, and he was fired, and the company had to change its name. I find that interesting. <laughs> it, it was so bad that they had to change the name to something else. And uh, now whenever, whenever a, um, a CEO or somebody in, big in the company says something that sort of shoots himself in the foot, business people say he was doing a ratner. Anyway, we should probably get Gordon Uncle John back on again, Mr. McMillan. It's been a decade and a half since we had him. I think he's still involved with the production of these books, I imagine so. And, God, he'd be a great guest to, to bring back. But in the meantime, let's pull out some of his volumes, uh, ones that have come out since we spoke to him last, and see if we can uh, extract some memorable moments. All right, a few years after we spoke to Uncle John, we had our copy of the 24-karat gold bathroom reader's edition, and I was amused to see on page 145 a reference to the Supreme Court, which we were talking about in our first segment. But notes the book, in 2011, Elena Kagan was called for jury duty in Washington, D.C. She dutifully showed up at court and sat with the other prospective jurors, but ultimately she wasn't chosen. She then returned to her day job, of course, being an associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. 
There was also a section entitled Unexpected Encounters. The subheadline noted that the photo of Elvis Presley's 1970 meeting with President Richard Nixon is the National Archive's most requested item. More popular than both the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Here's one other encounter we we thought of note. Growing up in the 1860s in what is now Croatia, Nikola Tesla was a sickly child prone to all manner of unidentified illnesses. Doctors had given up on him. One day, while Tesla was bedridden, someone gave the sick boy an anthology of Mark Twain's short stories. Tesla later said, It was so captivating as to make me utterly forget my hopeless state. And he credited the writer with what was considered a miraculous recovery. Tesla, of course, went on to pioneer electrical engineering and laid the groundwork for modern-day electricity, including alternating current. In 1888, the two men met for the first time. Tesla told Twain how his stories had saved him as a child and, quote, was amazed to see the great man of laughter burst into tears, unquote. They became friends, and Twain, an enthusiastic supporter of science, often spent time with Tesla in his New York laboratory. No, Mr. Miller, we have no reason to believe that the electronic twitching of a frog's leg has anything to do with, you know, the story of Calaveras County. A few weeks back, we excerpted, this is for the Pledge Drive program at, uh, at KDVS, we excerpted a little clip from Daniel Shore describing how he was on the air talking about Nixon's enemy list when a copy of it was handed to him and his name was on it. Uh, Uncle John, in this same book, decided, <coughs> decided to list Nixon's enemies list. And sure enough, as reported by Daniel Shore on this very program, the memo slash enemies list labeled the CBS News reporter a real media enemy. Notes the Reader's series, Daniel Shore made several reports over the years that Nixon loathed, including a sympathetic interview with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev in 1957 and an examination of life in East Germany in 1962. The FBI opened a file on Dan Shore in 1971 when Nixon was president. As he informed us, that was the only time his taxes were ever audited. By the way, at number 19 on the list, appearing in the Reader's Series, is Paul Newman, which they say, yes, the Paul Newman, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. He was also aligned with, quote, radical and liberal causes, unquote, including the unsuccessful presidential campaign of Democrat Eugene McCarthy in 1968. Paul Newman had personally endorsed the candidate in campaign commercials, and Nixon's folks feared he might be used again in such a way in 1972. All right, the next year, of course, the 25th edition of the series came out. It was titled Fully Loaded, 25th Anniversary. And one of the sections, a perennial favorite, is examples of signs written in poor English in foreign countries. Among them, this is from a sign instructing people to keep off the grass in China. I like your smile, but unlike you, put your shoes on my face. Apparently, outside a restaurant in Istanbul was a sign, sorry, we're open. I guess the question there is for the patrons. Were they sorry it was open? Next to a staircase in Japan, there was a sign that said, please be careful about a step in a head. I'd be more worried about a step on a head, but whatever. Here's my favorite, though. Outside a church in Costa Rica was a sign that said, please, no explanations inside the church. All right, now perennial favorite section, which appears in, uh, I'd say, uh, is Probably every one of these volumes are close to it. It's a section titled Dumb Crooks. 
The subheadline of the section in this particular book, which is the 25th edition, says U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia once said law enforcement has many constraints. But one thing that it has going for it is that criminals are stupid. To which I would add, not all criminals. Some become president. But under the headline, The Scarlet Chicken, we have this. When employees at the Chicken Shack in Lakeland, Florida, arrived at work one morning, they discovered that the restaurant had been burgled. It didn't take police too long to track down the crooks, Chad Berrien and Ricky Wright. They were found a few blocks away, drinking the beer they stole and wearing brand new Chicken Shack t-shirts. Under the headline, Not So Clean Getaway, we have this. Three 19-year-olds, Nicholas Kalschauer, Nicholas Fumietto, and Andy Hun, hatched a plan to steal a case of beer from the Baja Ranch Market in Covina, California in 2011. While Hun waited out in the getaway car, Klauscher and Fumietto snatched the beer and ran out. Employees gave chase and captured Klauschauer immediately. Fumietto jumped into the car as Hun hit the accelerator. But instead of getting away, they swerved to avoid hitting a store clerk, slammed into a curb, and stopped. By this time, the police had arrived, so the two men ditched the car. Fiumetto ran into a nearby car wash tunnel and became stuck among the brushes and water jets. By the time he escaped all wet, the cops were waiting for him. Hun got away, but he did leave his ID badge in the car and was thereby soon captured later. And my personal favorite, under the headline House of Cards, we have this. In 2011, Benjamin North of Eureka, California, tried to make a purchase from his local Safeway using a stolen credit card. He might have gotten away with it, too, had he not assisted local sheriff's deputies in finding him by using his own Safeway club card in order to get a discount. Now, why he felt the need to get a discount on a stolen credit card, we, we don't know. Maybe he was just trying to be nice to the guy that he stole it from. Give him a discount, you know? These books are chock full of statistics. Some are pretty shocking. This one shocks me. The life expectancy in the U.S. in 1955 was 68 By 2011, it was 78. And before vaccination was introduced in 1963, 90% of American children contracted measles. By 2012, most school districts won't admit a child unless they're vaccinated, a practice that has virtually eradicated the disease. Here's a sad one. It was known that asbestos was unsafe as an insulating and fireproofing material since the 1930s but asbestos continued to be used in public buildings up to the 1970s. Breathing its fibers led to what's guesstimated to be 250,000 lung cancer deaths. Balancing that off a bit, we have this. There were 63 million cars on the road in 1963, but only 8 million of them had seat belts. None had additional safety features like anti-lock brakes or airbags. By 2011, there were 125 million cars on the road and virtually all have seat belts and 80% are equipped with airbags. All right, jumping ahead to the Uncle John's 28th bathroom reader. This is labeled fantastic. We have this. We have the Friedman unit. A unit of time equal to six months, or more specifically, the next six months, referring primarily to the war in Iraq. The explanation for this was that in May of 2006, the media watchdog group, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, did a study in which they counted the number of times New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman predicted the Iraq war, which Friedman supported, would be resolved, quote, in the next six months, unquote. Their finding, over a period of two and a half years, he made the prediction 14 times. 
This led the liberal blogger Duncan Black, an outspoken opponent of the war, to coin the term Freedman Unit, or FU, in honor of Freedman's <laughs> FU, I like it, in honor of Freedman's repeated and repeatedly wrong prediction. The FU became so well known in press circles that Friedman was asked about it directly a number of times, including by comedian Stephen Colbert on a 27 episode of The Colbert Report. Friedman responded by saying, I'm afraid we've run out of six months. It's really time to set a deadline. And if you're a fan of The Simpsons, and, and we kind of hope you are because they've done some funny stuff over the years, that's for sure. There's a collection in this edition of Quick Sight Gags, which appear as funny signs outside of stores, businesses, and offices in Springfield. Such as Wild Animal Kingdom, Born Free, Then Caged, Springfield Little League Park, Warning, Your Child Is Not As Good As You Think He Is, In and Out Ear Piercing, If It Dangles, We'll Punch a Hole in It, and my personal favorite, Springfield Savings Alone, safe from 1890 to 1986, 1988 on. <laughs> and in a section titled Bad Advertising Campaigns, we have the following. In 2013, the Tumble Down Trails Golf Course in Verona, Wisconsin, commemorated the 12th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks with a special offer for golfers. To promote it, Tumble Down's general manager, Mark Watts, placed an ad in the Wisconsin State Journal saying, quote, we're offering nine holes with cart for only 9.11 per person or 18 holes with a cart for only 19.11. 9.11.13 only. The ad also told readers to like us on Facebook. Lots of people went to Facebook, all right, but not to click on like. You're awful people, one Facebook user wrote. The tastelessness of offering a 9-11 sale on golf is sickening. Who sinks that low? And that was one of the nice posts. So many hostile comments and even death threats were posted online or phoned to the golf course Watts considered shutting down on 9-11 for his own safety. He eventually decided to stay open with a sheriff's deputy on hand in case any trouble broke out, and none did. Rather than continue to accept reservations at the advertised sale price, Watts charged the standard rate and donated the difference to the 9-11 memorial in New York City. He said, we're a little hurt that people are putting out such a negative context on this. We'll do something next year. I guarantee it won't be this, but we will not be trying to remind people of 9-11. Good plan. And finally, in one section titled Bombed on Broadway, the book said if your play manages to get to Broadway, you've already achieved a huge accomplishment in the world of theater. But then you've got to deliver... And these folks didn't. We have time for one of the four examples. In this case, Moose Murders, 1983. This quote, whodunit, unquote, by playwright Arthur Bicknell, was about a group of people who got stuck in the Wild Moose Lodge in New York's Anirondack Mountains during a storm. Then they started getting murdered by someone wearing a moose costume. Notable characters, a wheelchair-bound quadriplegic man entirely wrapped in gauze, a hippie teenager named Stinky, who is obsessed with trying to sleep with his mother. The only reason this play made it to Broadway was that the producers convinced longtime Hollywood star Eve Arden to play the lead. But the play was so stinky that Arden quit after the first preview. Moose Murders received some of the most scathing reviews in Broadway history. New York Post critic Clive Barnes wrote, It was so indescribably bad that I don't intend to waste anyone's time by describing it. The New Yorker's Brendan Gill said the play would insult the intelligence of an audience consisting entirely of amoeba. 
And New York Magazine said it seemed as if the play was staged by a blind director repeatedly kicked in the groin. Moose Murders was canceled after one performance. There's a bonus fact with this one. In 2013, Bicknell published a book entitled Moose Murdered, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love My Broadway Bomb. This is the -the behind-the-scenes story of the flop play. And it got great reviews. Yeah, as far as we know, the guy in the moose suit was not wearing a bullwinkle outfit. But, you know, if he had, perhaps it would have improved the play. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll uh, see you soon.